So, here we are, in the immediacy of things, fluidity of things, just like thisness of things. And often, at least in my experience, beginning of the afternoon, some of that just like thisness involves a certain kind of uh, <laughs> dullness of mind, warmth of the day, some of the energy of the system being taken by digestion, a tendency to do that kind of interesting meditation form of, uh, you know that. It's not so bad all the while you go forwards. It's when you, it's when you go, oh, that's the one that. Although that one finally tends to wake you up. So. I often find it helpful at the beginning of the afternoon period just because there's a certain natural uh, drop-off in brightness of attention that's there to do a little movement. So partly because it helps to just kind of energize the cells, wake up a little, and partly as a, actually as a practice of using movement and sensation to really kind of uh, bring your attention into the immediacy of lived experience, visceral experience, bodily life. So, in in um, in accordance with whatever you know, we won't do anything too strenuous or complicated, but in accordance with whatever body can manage and. Uh, let's just stand up and spread out a little, find some space in the room. Bring a little more weight. Okay, we'll just try this last one. It goes like this. Shinja! Yeah! Oh! Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's take our seat for meditation. Right, you see what it did to him, right? <laughs> so the same practice. Being as simple in a way as we can with meditation practice. And using the support that fits well, however you find yourself. Just the basic fact of being here, awareness as its own support, or using breath and body, if that's helpful, to ground your attention, and letting these qualities of experience that we've been pointing to and exploring Letting them, or letting the one of them you may have chosen to focus on, just letting it come forth. Letting yourself meet your experience in the light of 
its fluidity, in the light of its just like thisness, in the light of the here-ness that actually makes room for experience, etc. So just establishing yourself in posture and presence. Letting your posture express a certain groundedness and stability that invites a steady awareness. Letting your posture be bright and upright in a way that invites clarity of awareness. Letting your posture be open, particularly in your shoulders and chest, inviting a certain receptivity of awareness. And letting your posture be relaxed and easeful, inviting a certain gentleness of awareness. And thus establishing an intimacy with the way things are. Thus exploring the interplay of awareness and experience. Like this, we sit here together. The experience of this moment How are you meeting it? Just find out. Maybe there's some fascination, some contraction. Some telling yourself a story about what's happening. And if so, seeing if you can gracefully unhook. Leaving it alone. Maybe there's the space of awareness around what's happening. And space in which to know the hereness of things. Allow the ambiguity of experience. Let the whole universe express itself, arise and pass as it will. Just letting your meditation 
letting this moment be one of discovery, of intimacy, of exploration. Letting this moment be the open doorway to deepening. What's happening right now? And what's the nature of this experience? What happens if you see the quality that you've been exploring in the experience of this moment. Here is awareness. This knowing that here's my voice. knows the experience of sitting here. And here's experience unfolding as these sounds and sensations, these ideas and images. Here is life expressing its nature. Fluid and freely unfolding. Immediate and ungraspable. Inviting us to wake up to the way things are. Right now. just like this. Last few minutes of sitting together, just like this.
So, maybe I'll start with the propaganda piece. Uh, rather than uh, sort of squeezing that stuff in at the end. So, uh, there's probably a link to my website or something on the New York Insight page if you want to know more about what I'm doing. There's a couple of postcards at the back, one about the mindfulness teacher training, the year long, that I run with Mark Coleman from Spirit Rock. And there's also something at the back about uh, Worldwide Insight, which is this new uh, online Dharma class that uh, we started a few weeks ago that uh, runs every Sunday and the various different teachers from around the world lead it. And uh, there's guided meditation and teachings and then this very cool platform that we've made where people can press a little button called raise your hand and then you can come on and uh, interact live on video with the teacher and uh, have Q&A like that. So it's actually been particularly great resource for people who don't live in urban centers and have regular access to Sangha. And in the first few weeks of launching, we've had about 3,000 people participate from 74 different countries. So it's, uh, it's really, it's very touching actually as a teacher when I lead the session, having this sense, you know, we've been speaking today about the here-ness of experience. And so there's these people in all these disparate locations around the world, all in front of their own computers, and yet it's very tangible, the sense that we're, we're sitting here together. So, as I say, you, you guys have the great resource of this place, right? And no doubt other stuff happening in New York, but there's something about that, whether of interest to you or others you may know who don't have such easy access to, uh, to a live sangha. Um, and... The other thing I want to mention is that some of you actually did the, have done previous online courses with me, particularly the Work, Sex, Money, Dharma course that I did online. And at the end of this month, I'm starting a new month-long course called I See You Mara, from, inner free, from the inner critic to inner freedom. And it's really it's a month-long of uh, online uh, teachings and, again, with some video interactive uh, sessions with me are just exploring that whole territory of the inner critic and the way we tend to uh, undermine our own well-being, you know, the way that sort of doubt and uh, negative self-talk corrupts our own our practice and even the insights and openings that arise out of it. And um, yeah, it's work that I think is really, really kind of crucial in... Uh, in just just living more easily with oneself, and uh, anyway, so you can find out more about that just on at martinaylwood.com on my website, as well as links here and there. I don't have postcards about that, but I'm telling you about it now. Okay. So I thought I'd reflect a little bit this afternoon, partly in light of. Uh, of, uh, is it John? John's question this morning, to which I responded something to do with the sense of, how does one know, he asks. And I said something about a taste of freedom. And so I thought I'd sort of unpack that. What, you know, what, some, what is the taste of freedom? Or specifically, how do we respond to life as, as we see the nature of experience more clearly? 
And before I get to that, I just I want to mention one more of the Tars. Last night we were talking about these different qualities in terms of their Pali names. Right? So Yanabhutata, the hearness. Uh, dhammata, the naturalness of experience. Tatata, the just like thisness of experience. These qualities that we've been pointing to and reflecting on and, and looking at experience through the lens of during the day. And uh, one of the tar, the famous tars, and that's been notable by its absence so far, is anatta. I guess a lot of you are familiar, right, with anatta. And some of you maybe who don't know or don't care about the Pali versions of these things. So anatta is a very poorly misunderstood, I would say, uh, way that experiences. Or maybe a little... It's a very poor translated description of the way experience is. The dreadful way that anatta is usually translated. It's quite a good build-up I'm giving, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The dreadful way that anatta is usually translated is, I mean, the most dreadful way is there is no self. That's the most dreadful way it's translated. More or less dreadful is something to do with some people say, oh, it's not that there's no self, it's that it's not self. I'm trying to make a distinction between no self and not self. I would say it's still dreadful. Right? So what does anatta mean? Right? One of the reasons it's dreadful is we tend to try to make some philosophical position out of it. Right? Out of this strange statement, there is no self. So we tend to start off in a very clear and strong belief that there is a self. And then we notice that this self kind of struggles a bit with life, gets into friction with life, gets confused about life, experiences loss in life, gets stressed with life. And we start to think, oh, it's troublesome, this self. And then we hear that there's this practice that can kind of address the troublesomeness of life and explore the troublesomeness of life, and free up the troublesomeness of life. We we hear, or we see, or we taste that there's a way to approach this self, work with this self, explore this self. But then we get this equally troublesome idea, there is no self. And we go from being completely convinced that there is a self, to either being convinced, see plenty of Buddhists who are convinced, there's no self, no, no, there's no self, Or we're not actually convinced by the teaching that there is no self, but we think we ought to be, because Buddhists are supposed to be convinced that there's no self. So we tend to occupy, and you can see for yourself, we tend to occupy some uncomfortable and untenable position somewhere on this spectrum. Either we're secretly, we're maybe still in the Buddhist closet of believing, actually, I do believe there's a self, or we're... (laughs) Or we're some kind of proper Buddhist convert and we're convinced, no, there is no self. Or we struggle somewhere along that continuum. So, as I I say, I think the translation is unhelpful and misleading. And we're not interested in a philosophical position. That's exactly what the Buddha talks about in terms of the middle way. What's the middle way? The middle way is one that avoids philosophical, clumsy positions like there is or there isn't. 
And there's one place uh, somebody clearly asks in the text, one place where someone clearly asks the Buddha, for goodness sake, is there a self or isn't there? And the Buddha stays silent. Right? He refuses to, to answer because there's something so clumsy about the question that to either reify the self, right, to make it really into something as if this one I take myself to be is actually real and fixed and has some kind of essence to it, well, that's not, it's not like that. But equally ludicrous is to deny it. Say, no, there's nothing here. And to land in some fixed position that there isn't a self. Reification, right, making something solid and real, and negation, making something non-existent or denying that it's there, are as clumsy, as blind, as stuck as each other. So if we don't bother with uh, trying to fit ourselves into some uncomfortable and rather preposterous philosophical position about whether there is a self or isn't, but instead we're willing to look at our experience. That orientating question we've been exploring today, what does experience reveal to us? The suggestion is, Buddha's suggestion, is that all experience is anatta. Atta means literally, in the Pali, means kernel. Like, you know, a kernel, like inside a nut. Right? So, anatta means kernellessness. Kernellessness. Right? Experience is, or maybe an easier word that still has the same sense, essencelessness. Experience is essenceless. In other words, it doesn't have, if we look at it, and again, we're not trying to convince ourselves, we're not trying to take a philosophical position, we're trying to explore, what does experience reveal? And there's these tars, these suggestions that the Buddha gives. Experience reveals itself to be fluid, to be just like this, to be naturally unfolding, to be immediate, to be ungraspable, to be... to being lacking in any essence, any uh, solidity that we can find. Insubstantialness might be another word. Experience is essenceless or insubstantial. So rather than this strange philosophical position we might take, what difference might that make to look at our experience as it arises, and to see, does it have any essence? Because I tend to assume a lot of essence to things. I tend to look at life as if it's made up of things. You and you and you and you and you, this and that and this and that. So, and yet when we get close to experience, we have that sense Right? And all these qualities, they're not really different qualities. They're nuances or facets of the inherent qualities of experience. So as we see the fluidity of things, the immediacy of things, then the insubstantialness of things starts to stand out to us. 
and the thing that I'm most interested in, most preoccupied by, most obsessed with, this thing, the self thing. And yet, thoughts arise fluidly, insubstantially. Body, which I tend to, the tendency is to conceive of as a thing, this thing called body, but when I pay attention to it, oh, bodily, what I call body is just like a dance of living experience, vibration, sensation. When I pay attention to the essencelessness, the thinglessness, the insubstantiality, the dance, the movement, the ungraspableness of my experience, as I let that work on me, I take myself, this thing I've taken myself to be, less seriously. I take myself less personally. I find my experience of what's happening, my relationship with what's happening, my response to what's happening, becomes similarly fluid, less personal. In other words, less shot through with making it all about me. So along with these other qualities, these tars that we've been talking about today, the invitation, particularly when we get um, exercised about something, you know, in other words, when something's happening that I'm making it all about me, it's interesting sometimes to see, can you follow, just to see as an open inquiry, can you find the one you're making it all about? To actually find out. The assumption just assumes that there's this sort of indwelt kernel of Martinness. Actually, to see, it's very interesting. Again and again, I mean, it needs a lot because I'm really, really convinced that there's a kernel of Martinness in here. Right? So it takes again and again. But actually, it's extraordinary to see how, how quickly the assumption can ossify that there's a, a kernel of Martinness that's worth defending and getting uptight about. And yet, interesting to see how preposterous that is, or how, how that collapses when I actually look for it. So here are these qualities. And as we look at them, we, we experience life increasingly in the light of these qualities. We experience life more immediately, more fluidly, more spaciously, more lightly, less personally. And yet, we might say what our practice is most concerned with isn't so much the, um, the spacious abiding or the fluid abiding or the peaceful abiding that might come about as the result of our clear seeing of our insights. What's really, what's most significant maybe about our practice 
isn't the, the sense of freedom that one might enjoy over here. What's most significant is how do I respond to the world? How do we respond to the world? What is the taste of freedom, or we might say the expression of freedom? What's the point, I might put it in another way, what's the point of being spacious? What's the point of feeling peaceful? What's the point of knowing, even in a very intimate and direct and uh, mystical way even, the fluidity of life over here? We've got to live here together. Our life has to be a response to the world. And the world, you know, the world has meant different things to different people through history. Not many generations, the world was much smaller. You know, the boundaries of the world, you know, a lot of people never went more than maybe 50 or 100 miles from where they lived. So the sense of the world, the contact uh, people had with the world was kind of much more limited. And nowadays, for, for most of us at least, whether you go very far or not, our sense of the world is very much a globalized world. You know, that, I mean, just that image of planet Earth. I'm often struck how that's a very new image. You know, that blue-green ball in space. When was the first space trip? 1961, was it? So, so does that mean that that image that we're so used to, when I say world, right, that image that we have, it's only 60 years or so old. And prior to that, I can only assume that the sense of the world was at least slightly different. We may have had globes, but it wasn't informed by that photograph. So the more our sense of world has become globalized, at least, complex, intercultural, interlinked, I mean, in all kinds of ways, interlinked just you know, through media and what we know of the world and what's happening on the planet and in different places, etc., etc., our sense of the world and its fragility, given the ecological crisis. Our world in terms of the way we're exposed to the, the dukkha, the suffering of wars and of injustices and of intolerance and of, the, uh, and of all the stuff that you and I know about, hear about, read about. So this practice has always asked of us to respond to the world. And yet, given how connected the world is, we might have a sense that that response has a certain kind of urgency to it, given resource scarcity, population growth, ecological crisis. That might bring that response into a rather sharp relief. The, the, the Buddha points to four responses. 
And they're not normally spoken about in this way as responses, but they seem to me to be the four clearest ways of speaking about what a free response to life is. The four, the four clearest ways of speaking about how the taste of freedom shows up. The four clearest ways of understanding, actually, what the real fruits of seeing life's fluidity, life's immediacy, of taking life less personally, etc. The four clearest ways of seeing what the actual fruits of that seeing is. So the, these four ways, I tend to speak about them as the four flavors of love, which is a rather free translation for the Brahma Viharas. And the four, sometimes they're called the four boundless qualities. And they tend to, I mean, you have to see in your own experience or your own practice, the teachings you've heard, but they tend to be spoken about more as heart practices, as something to do. Right? So metta, karuna, Mudita Upeka in the Pali, some of you are familiar. Others will be familiar with uh, them in, in the regular translations, and you may be getting a sense now that I'm not very keen on a lot of regular translations. Regular translations, just to, for the familiarity for those of you. Loving kindness, compassion, uh, appreciative joy, equanimity. So a little bit of a reframe, I call them care compassion, delight, and spaciousness. And uh, just, just to explore them a little, partly to uh, might unpack why I speak about them slightly differently, and, why, and to, to speak about them not in terms of practices, not in terms of something to do, not as something to try and attain, but as the, respon- the natural responses of the free heart. When we're taking, when we're seeing experience in such a way that we're taking ourselves less personally, when we're, in other words, when we're less self-obsessed, when there's a certain sensitivity and a certain expansiveness, a certain capacity to actually see and feel the fluidity and the spaciousness and the immediacy of life, then we respond to that that's happening. And these four qualities seem to me that they, they respond depending on what's happening. If what's happening is nothing special, if what's happening is just experience, it doesn't have a particular charge, it's not uh, wonderful, nor is it very difficult. It's just, you know, much of experience is uh, just like that. Like now, unless you're particularly bored or particularly super inspired by what I'm saying, right? Or particularly really uncomfortable or in some kind of super bliss state for some reason or another. It's just, you know, it's okay, right? It's more or less okay probably being here. So much of uh, experience is more or less okay. And when nothing special is happening, when when we tend to just self-obsess when nothing special is happening, right? nothing special. So I'll make I'll try and make it special about me. But when when we're not when we're not doing that, when our when our contact with life is informed 
by these qualities we've been exploring today, then the response of the heart is to care. I mean, it's care. The taste of freedom is not really measured in the kinds of things that are often imagined, some sort of feeling of bliss or feeling of peacefulness or some kind of uh, sort of still state of mind where nothing troublesome ever happens. Actually, the taste, the, the marks, we might say, of freedom are much more in terms of these qualities. And the default position of the heart is one of caring. Personally, I find this, uh, the word loving kindness is a little saccharine, you know. But more important than the appellation, than what we call it, what, what is metta? What is the experience of metta? What is the, the way the heart shows up? The experience of metta generally seems to be common to every heart, pretty much. The felt sense of metta is warmth, a kind of r radiant warmth in the heart. Right? That's what metta actually feels like. That's what, I'm, that's what care feels like. I care. I care. The care goes in whatever direction it goes in. Right? Depends on what's happening. If the attention is drawn to what's over there, the care goes there. If the attention is drawn to what's happening in here, the care goes here. The nature of the free heart is it's kind of unconcerned by what direction it's going in. Right? All it's interested in is expressing its free movement. The free heart cares. The fruits of knowing life to be fluid. The fruits of taking things less personally. The fruits of being less obsessed about objects. Are that one's capacity to care just shows up more and more. But sometimes what's happening isn't just ordinary. Sometimes what's happening has a certain charge. Sometimes what's happening is painful. And then the heart meets that. That's, that's uh, what karuna is, compassion. Often one hears metta and karuna spoken about in a rather muddled way, almost as if they're one thing. People seem to use loving kindness and compassion kind of interchangeably. But they're completely different qualities of heart. If metta is that feeling in the heart of a, of a kind of radiant warmth, a reaching out care, caringly, the feeling in the heart of compassion is it hurts. The feeling of the heart of in the heart of compassion is it's painful. When one sees, and again, it doesn't matter whether it's over there or in here, whether it's right here or whether it's in the broader context, whether it's immediate in somebody or something that needs attention, or whether it's more abstracted in some kind of situation, or some global situation, some social justice situation that we're concerned about. It hurts to be in contact with it. And the movement of the heart is it wants to respond. It wants to reach out. It wants to, uh, yeah, to respond. It's hard 
to respond when we're self-obsessed. The, the defended heart tends in the face of that which is painful either to get overwhelmed, I can't, oh, what can I do? It's the terrible world. Uh-huh. Or tends to just turn away, to shut it out because we're afraid of pain. And yet when we notice, when our experience is informed by the fact that things are fluid, when our experience is informed that it's ta-ta-ta, it's like this, then the capacity to respond to that which is painful, to that which needs attention, to that which demands a response, that's what happens in the free heart. It responds to that which is painful. Sometimes what's happening is delightful, sweet, beautiful. There's a lot to appreciate in life, although we tend not to see it when we're self-obsessing, when we're fixating on objects. But just, you know, I mean, the fact of being here at all is quite extraordinary. The blessings that each one of us enjoy in different ways are quite extraordinary. And our, our tendency to obsess means that we could walk around this city, for example, reflecting on what we don't have. It's, it's like the, the, the default direction of the self-obsessing heart and mind it tends to be that. To, to, to concern myself with lack. And advertising does a great job of uh, turning the screw in that, right? So we can look at the fancy apartments or the fancy cars or the fancy jobs or the whatever it is. You can find, hey, this is Manhattan, right? You can find all kinds of fancy. You can find all kinds of ways to reinforce a sense of your own sense of lack should you be so inclined. And unfortunately, we tend to most of us be so inclined. And meanwhile, we're, 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 uh, we're being showered in the blessings of our life. Because one can also walk around Manhattan and see and reflect on the good fortune of the fact of the extent to which you're fed, clothed, sheltered, etc., etc., So it's just just the material blessings of life. And just the, the blessings of even the fact that this is that we're here at all. The, the, the delight of what's happening that actually may have nothing to do with me at all. The delight of seeing children play in a park, or the delight of the the way of sun reflects on a building or whatever it might be. The heart has an extraordinary capacity to nourish itself through delighting in the beautiful. Beauty actually really draws awareness. Beauty draws the heart. That's really well understood in the Zen tradition. Hence the the care with aesthetics. The Theravada tradition is not so uh, aesthetics. Like, what aesthetic? Right? 
You go to the Theravada Centre and drink your tea, you tend to get, like, there's this retreat centre I teach at in the UK, and, like, all the mugs are chipped. <laughs> and there's, like, that's a great virtue. We drink out of chipped mugs here. We're, you know, we're... But you go to a Zen centre, oh, much... It's bowl. It's different. It's different to drink tea out of a beautiful porcelain bowl than it is to drinking out of a chipped cup, right? Yeah, right. What What's different about it? The heart delights in beauty, right? But the self-obsessive heart tends to get very possessive of beauty, of what I like. We try to seize hold of the pleasant in some ways to try to gratify ourselves as if to consume it in some way. And yet, when we're in contact with the fluidity of things, the just-like-thisness of things, when we're not taking ourselves so seriously, the heart actually expands in delight. There's this strange idea in the translation of Mudita that empathic joy, it's sometimes called, or appreciative joy, or sometimes sympathetic joy, some sense that we're only allowed to feel joy, and it's sometimes described this way, it's the joy at other people's good fortune. That's, I don't know where that idea comes from, but the heart that doesn't know anything about that. The heart just knows about delight. The heart knows about enjoyment, enjoying the delightful. The feeling in the heart of mudita is like, it's like champagne in the heart. It's like it has a kind of fizz. It's like a kind of, yeah, it's like champagne in the heart. It says it's got a kind of fizz to it, the fizz of delighting in, of enjoying. And the capacity of the free heart to enjoy is quite extraordinary. Not in a kind of woohoo, jump up and down way, although that too, why not, right? But often in a just in a kind of in a way that one can knows the heart is being nourished. So that actually, you know, there's this lovely line by Rumi where he talks about joy and sorrow being the same thing. Something is my joy is my sorrow unmasked. It's probably a horrible bastardization of the line, but anyway. And the why actually the heart's capacity to feel and respond to suffering. And the heart's capacity to nourish itself through delighting in beauty, actually, the, the, they, they come from the same place. They nourish each other. The taste of free, the free heart, the taste of freedom, is that capacity to respond to the painful, to the delightful, as and when they present themselves. And sometimes what's happening, so three classes, right? Ordinary, what's happening? Response to care. Difficult or painful, what's happening? Response to the, the, the heart's response through compassion. Delightful, what's happening? Oh, the heart's response to enjoy, to delight in. And then sometimes what's happening is just kind of uh, unstable, uncertain unpredictable. There's a mix of all of that. Moments of ordinary, moments of painful, moments of beautiful, 
just the kind of the complexity and ambiguity of human experience is there. And amidst that ambiguity, the response of the free heart is to kind of just to expand enough to make room for it all. The feeling of upeka, it's often called equanimity, the actual feeling in the heart of upeka is a kind of vastness of heart, an expansiveness of heart, an inclusiveness of heart, a kind of a willingness to just let it all in. To love it, whatever the it is, just because it's here. I find that word equanimity rather clumsy. It sounds like a flat word to me. Equanimity suggests some kind of middle ground where I stay very equanimous and so now I know that things are pleasant but I'm equanimous and now things are unpleasant but I'm equanimous. That sounds more like shut down to me than, than, than vast and inclusive. Right? Equanimity is a quality of heart. It's a flavor of love. It's, it's, it's the heart being vast and inclusive. That's what the heart wants to do. These responses of heart, you know, even in, in speaking about them and evoking them, we can sense there's a kind of rightness, freeness, authenticity to meeting what's happening by caring for what's here, by meeting the painful, by responding to it, by meeting the delightful, by enjoy, enjoying it. And by meeting the vicissitudes and the ambiguity and the complexity of life, by making room for it, by letting it in. So, my encouragement would be, in the way we've been doing uh, last night and today, to feel for the immediacy of things, to feel for the fluidity of things, to feel for the just like thisness of things. Whether one's meditating or whether one's walking around or whether one's doing anything at all, I've been trying to bring alive this orientation in a way that totally doesn't make it dependent upon meditation. To bring it alive, it doesn't depend on attaining some particular state. Every experience, every moment, expresses the way life is because every moment of life is the way life is. No moment of life can be other than the way life is. The only thing that can give us the impression of life being anything other than the way life is is by self-obsessing about it. Then we get all kinds of weird impressions about the way life is. But to feel for the fluidity, the immediacy, the just-like-thisness, the natural unfolding, the certain orderly intelligence of things... is to be able to care more, to respond more, 
to enjoy more and to make room more for this life. Whether, what's, whether the attention goes here or goes here or goes here to the realm of, that I call self or inner life, to the realm that I call you, the life of others, or to the realm that I call the world, all of this. Those aren't really three different realms. What arises always arises here. I call it self or other or world. Here is what needs caring for. What's here is what needs responding to. What's here is what we can enjoy. What's here is what we can make room for. So that our practice is increasingly a freedom of being and a freedom of responding, of meeting the world like this. So, may these reflections serve that freeing up of things. And if uh, uh, you have comments or questions or explorations to add, please feel free to use the time we have available for that. Yeah, do you have a mic? Hi, I'm Eric. Mm. And these teachings have come at a really opportune time for me because for the last few months, I've been exploring sort of like these open awareness sort of exercises, feeling the spaciousness and mm. the presence of things. And it's really changed the way that I do my walking meditation for the better. And I'd always had pretty much a, a good facility for sitting and doing the concentration practices. Mm. But I notice as I've gotten into this, I feel like I have a harder time trying to sit, and I'm more more restless and filled with you know hindrances and things. And mm. I used to be able to sit for longer periods, and now it's just sort of like I really have difficulty just trying to sit. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could address that a little bit. I can probably only address it a little bit because I think what I would be really interested in is how come. But I think that's probably a little more in-depth than we have the opportunity for now. But I think, firstly, I'd encourage you in that direction. Right? Well, how come? And that might not, it might not be at all obvious to you how come. In fact, if it was obvious, you probably wouldn't be asking me, right? But to actually let yourself kind of, to let that uh, mijote in French, what do you say, marinate, right? To let that, that question, how come? What's the restlessness about? What's uh, happening when you sit? And to let yourself really kind of find out about that. And one of the ways you'll find out is by not pathologizing it, right? into a problem where I used to be able to sit longer and now I'm sort of gone backwards or regressed and I can't sit. No, there's a reason why restlessness is showing up. 
And I'm curious about it, right? Except we don't have probably the time now to satisfy my curiosity. But mostly I'm curious on your behalf. What's happening? And in the light of the way I've just been speaking about it, then the encouragement would be to see how can you care for that restlessness? Right? If we don't make it wrong, if we don't obsess around the object of it, because if you do that, you'll end up either trying to fix it, right? trying to calm it down or stop it. But what if maybe the restlessness is the object right, for your practice? Not the breath or body or this or that, or the things that you have a certain facility to establish some concentration with, but actually awareness of restlessness. That means you give you, you're, you can be as restless as you like in meditation. Let yourself be fully restless. Not as a way, not identifying with that, right? What the restlessness will tend to do is produce a lot of restless thoughts about what you could be doing other than this, other than this, right? So just to see if you can, oh, keep dropping the, the, the ideas that the restlessness produces and see if you can care for it, be in contact with it, as restlessness, that slightly electric feeling, etc. Not trying to fix it, not trying to calm it down, but actually giving it the space. Restlessness is fluid. Restlessness is right here. Restlessness has something to reveal to you if you listen closely to it. Um, I've done um, you know, a fair amount of training in the Brahma Viharas, but it was only when you were speaking that it struck me as curious um, why compassion would be considered a heavenly abode when it can be so laced with pain. Um, my guess is it's because there's great connectivity in compassion, but I was wondering if you... Um, had any thoughts on why that, again, heavenly abode is a translation, but why that would be included in that list? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think partly it's a translation issue as well. Heavenly suggests sublimely enjoyable, right? But actually Brahma, the, uh, the connotation of Brahma is vast. Brahma is like all-encompassing, all like spans the universe, and it's that quality that's really pointed to that then gets slightly clumsily translated as divine or heavenly, as in which, but the, what's being pointed to is the expansiveness. In other words, there's no limit to the capacity of the heart to care. There's no limit to the capacity of the heart to respond. And actually, the, what those four things have in common is that they, they um, soften the boundaries between what we take to be self and what we take to be other. So it's true that it's, it's painful to feel compassion. But there, at the same time that it's painful, there's something actually beautiful in it, in as much as one knows one's not the non-separation, the intimacy with, the responsibility to. And that sense of that sense of the, the, the heart breaks with compassion. Right? breaks with the pain of it, but it breaks open. And so, 
they're also sometimes known as the, the, the limitless abodes or the boundless realms. And I think that's probably, to respond to what you're saying, it's probably a better translation for that than heavenly in terms of the connotations of you know, pleasant. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah please. It's okay. You don't have to. You don't have to get it right. Okay. The language of Buddhism isn't my abode, um, but there's something I've been that's coming up for me when it comes to responding, and there's something. The word that comes up for me is effectiveness, and for me, this translates immediately into my body because as I'm sitting here and noticing my shoulder, and I first I went, am I allowed to move or not allowed to move? And then I thought. You know, I kind of went through that and moved a little, didn't? And the effectiveness of responding with sometimes choosing to sit with it or just letting that happen until movement sort of happened. Hmm. And then what the movement did and going around with that, it actually cleared up some pain in my shoulder. You know, I'm a yoga teacher. I usually can do all kinds of acrobatics to move something through me or stillness, but I was quite struck by the effectiveness of this practice on a physical, mm. you know, manifestation. And so then I take it further, you know, when I think about responding to the world, very quickly I go to my children and my desire to care and be compassionate and delight and take it all in also helps them effective mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. them in helping them to be present to themselves. And so... I'm just, I guess I'm, that's just sort of a contemplation and I'm wondering about that idea of effectiveness, perhaps, Mm -hmm. is the word. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you just expressed it very well. (laughs) Right, there's something about that we tend to equate effectiveness. Now, culturally, we equate effectiveness with being, what's that word, proactive, right? Mm -hmm. With uh, doing something to be effective. And yet, actually, it sounds like what you experienced, that there's something in the non-doing, right, in a certain quiet, spacious attunement to what was happening, that was resolving in terms of the, the And pain. some doing, and some doing, and uh-huh. going, oh, you know, there was some, I allowed myself to respond as a body would to... Right. Oh, that, you know, but it, right. was, it, was, it was subtle, but it was, there was yeah. action so to it, was it a, as well. So attunement and response, yes. right? Rather than having some idea of what it was you were going to do and then right. setting about to, to... Or just trying not to, to do anything because I'm in meditation. I'm right. not supposed to do anything, right? That's wrong to... Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. Attunement yeah. and response. So I would say, you know, that's what we've been talking about. So the, the first part of the day, more emphasis on the attunement, right? Sensing into these qualities... And then in the, in the reflections I was just giving, there's that sense of how attunement translates into response. And response having an active component to it, perhaps. Having, definitely having an active component, but the, the active part become, being born rather naturally and freely out of the attunement. Otherwise, it's not yeah. really response, right? Otherwise, we're relying on my version of what I think needs to happen. And... I've kind of learned how I'm not very good at that. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. But wisdom's quite good at that. Mm. Right? Mm. When you're tuned to the way life is, then the way life is, is the resource that leads the response. Mm-hmm. Right? 
what I've been just trying to call the, 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 the free heart's response. Right? And then the response is born out of the attunement to the way things actually are. Whereas usual, ego-led uh, re- response, which isn't really a response, it's more of a reaction, right? Mm-hmm. then what it's leading is usually what I want, what I'm obsessed with, what I'm afraid of, etc. So that'll do what it'll do. But it sounds like just even in that, in that example, there's something about seeing a relationship between a close attunement to what's happening and the way the attunement can give rise to a response that's effective. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. And I would say, as so here, as so with children mm. or with politics or with uh, mm. environmental engagement or whatever it is that one mm. cares about, mm-hmm. the attunement to the way things actually are is a kind of more reliable way of responding mm. than all my ideas about what I think needs to happen. Um, I don't know if this is doing us wrong, uh, if this is directly related or not, but sometimes when I'm more in the flow of meditation, I have these dreams, and I get fascinated by the dreams because I don't always recall them. But sometimes when I make an effort to recall them, they just come in that... Do you have a way of working with dreams or, um, you know, um, some people believe this life is an inverse of a dream. So is there any productive way of working with dreams as they arise? Um, there, there seem to be. It's not my area particularly. So the, I'll just, the one thing I would say that I think is helpful and it's not to, not, I don't, by which I don't mean it's the, the thing that's helpful. There's plenty of other things that may be helpful in working with dreams that are just not my field, right? But one thing I would say that uh, is helpful is on waking from the dream to take care of the feeling state that's there. Because it seems to me that some of the processing that the dream is, which aside a little from the content and symbolism and anything else that, might one, might, that one might work with in the dream, that partly it's a, an emotional processing right? that might play out in a certain scenario. But if one wakes up feeling afraid, or if wake, one wakes up feeling confused, or if one wakes up feeling excited, or, or if whatever, to just to really attune in those, in those moments of waking up, to really attune to and care for the, sta- the feeling state that emerges out of the dream that you wake with. So that's the one piece I would offer from, from my perspective. And other than that, that I, you know, there may be all kinds of great dream work. It's just not my... I've got yeah, no authority there. Ah, uh-huh, good. Yeah. So uh, there's, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, some people do some work with lucid dreaming and things. A friend of mine just wrote a book about that, actually, although I can't remember the title. So. Yeah. Charlie Morley. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, my name is Tracy. Uh, thank you for coming and being here with us um, today. So I just want to say that I really appreciate the alternative language and vocabulary that you introduced a few minutes ago because for three years I had trouble saying loving kindness. Mm. It's just very, sorry, yucky. Really? (laughs) But care, I can really relate to or delight. So I really appreciate the alternative language to sort of help me to understand what exact 
you know, yeah. what they are. So I really appreciate that part. And one specific question related to this morning, you spoke about how our emotional responses happen sort of up here and here, and I found that very interesting. And so I'm just curious, you know, sometimes when you see people, they're sitting, but their legs are shaking like very rapidly. And I'm just, and of course, if you put both feet on the ground, you won't be shaking anymore. And so I've noticed that, and I'm trying to help people just, you know, just put mm. both feet on the ground. Mm. So I'm just curious in terms of the emotional state, when, or it's just caf highly caffeinated, or what is it? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, people people say, like yeah, they were just like, right. The and I'm just thinking, that must use a lot of, like brain energy in terms of those kind of muscular kind of movement. But I don't think, I think it's automatic. So I'm just curious about, um, in terms of those kind of movement, what's the emotional or psychological state one mm -hmm. is in to trigger that kind of movement. And I think place both feet on the ground mm -hmm. would definitely help to ground the person. Yeah. So it's some, you know, I would say it's agitation, restlessness. There may or may not be some more directly emotional component to it. But it seems to me that often that the kind of, there's a certain kind of uh, physical restlessness that, which is just the expression of what I call ego momentum, right? And just the, the kind of the momentum of doing that we get into. And, you know, there's nowhere like New York City <laughs> to experience the momentum of doing, you know? And the way in which, so you can look at it in the city, this, as an, this city as, as like the quintessential expression of that, right? But whether one's a leg shaker or not, oneself, or a table drummer, you know? That's a <laughs> similar thing. One can, you can look at that, the, you can uh, contact the momentum of doing in oneself right and it seems like the more we understand something in our own experience the more we are able to actually just see it when it's happening in somebody else even though it may have a different expression there so I, i'm not much of a leg shaker but i can but i can sort of a, when i see that going on i can feel them to do it the the ego momentum that I know, because we all, we, that's what ego does. It builds up a momentum. It gets fixated on doing. And then it's so enthralled with its own doing that it wants to keep on doing it. And so the two feet on the ground is a good resource for that. I'm, like I was saying earlier at the end of the morning, I'm a big fan of siesta for that. That's what the siesta is. It's not really, sometimes sleep will come. Often it doesn't. But there's something about, and of course, depends on your rhythm. Um, I know, many, you know, you can't necessarily just kind of lie down under the desk in the office at lunchtime, right? But when the opportunity's there to, to lie down, I think of lying as the posture of surrender, right? And that, what is it that you're surrendering? You're surrendering ego momentum. That doesn't mean that it will, that it will surrender easily, right? Because the nature of ego momentum is that ego is, main, is invested in maintaining its own doing. So when you first notice that you're, you know, some version of ego agitated, 
it's uncomfortable to attune to. What it wants to do is just keep going. But then that's kind of unsatisfactory as well because it's got this electric, restless quality to it. But like we were just saying with Eric, and uh, you know, not trying to fix it, not trying to calm it down, you don't need to stop it happening. But it's, it's almost like a, it's like a clockwork toy. Right, so what we usually the ego momentum's constantly winding itself up, winding itself up, and then that's hard work to wind itself up. But if you stop winding and just listen to it, there's no way to get past the fact that it's going to go for a while. So just the 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 taking a siesta or the let it putting two feet on the ground or letting yourself just feel the electricness by giving it just a certain space, a certain willingness to just hang in there with the discomfort of it so that it can, uh, so that the momentum can run out. You can't stop it, but you can stop feeding it, right? You can't go from winding to nothing, but you can stop winding and just stand back a little bit and let the zzzz happen. And to me, that's a lot of what the, what the encouragement in getting people to lie down a little is. It's like just giving yourself the opportunity to let the, whatever momentum has built up to just subside a little. And to let the kind of the, the self in the world posture that one may have got into to just recede and collapse and cool out a little. And it's, it's something incredibly refreshing about that. And, you know, micro, micro version of that, just a few moments of actually planting your feet on the ground. Oh, like actually making a visceral connection with the here-ness of things. Because right? the momentum is all about there, the there-ness, right? the, the destination, the where I'm going. Okay. Hi, yeah. my name is Riva. I think you almost uh, just answered my question. Um, I th uh, thank you very much. I, I think there is, I don't know a lot, I'm quite new in meditation. And what you said about the way we're responding to life um, taught me a lot But how to change it sometimes. And I think it, the response, the, the answer was just what you just said. Uh, that letting happen and make a room mm. for what it is, and but it is hard. And uh, when I do meditation, it's a lot for me about sensation and how mm. to try that to find that illness in the body, uh, stillness. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And and I was struggling a lot today um, by finding a balance between my left and right side mm -hmm. and I felt a lot of anger also mm -hmm. in this morning so I was with all that um, feelings and sensation um, yes that's it and okay. yeah thank so you I would I would just say don't don't be too keen on fight on looking for stillness because you will never find it mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Stillness will take care of itself, but you can't, none of us, we're all useless at being still. Okay. Right. What we can do is we can attune to and take care of the non-stillness. Right? 
we can stop winding the clockwork toy. And then stillness will, will manage by itself. So the taking on the responsibility of trying to make my mind still, one, it's uh, hard work and doesn't bear much fruit. And two, the very attempt to do it is actually creating more work. So, wonderful that you're attuning to and caring for what you're noticing in terms of the anger and the sensation and the certain way that your inhabiting of your practice is leading to some kind of energetic realignment about what you're noticing in left and right. Wonderful. So just, I would encourage you to be as sincere as you can with that and let stillness be still. And sooner or later you'll find that the way stillness is still will be, will, oh, will be here. Right? Will, will start to shine through your caretaking of your non-stillness. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, good. Thank you. So that you don't have to do it. Hey, I'm Nicole. Mm. Um, just thinking about <clears throat> painful feelings, um, emotional pain, and like, what what do you do literally when something comes at you? I just got some negative criticism of myself, mm. and just lit, like I have all these tools. I mean, I kind of know the answer. It's like the unhooking. But literally, in the moment, something comes at you, mm. or even walking down the street having those feelings of compassion. I mean, is it take a breath? Is it, you know, I don't want to feel that feeling, mm. the pain. Mm. So how long do I let, do I just sit with it and be in pain? <laughs> There's so many tools. Quickly yeah. get rid of it, yeah. smile at, you know, like, I know that's a, I know a lot of the answers, but is uh -huh. there... Okay, well, let's start with what you know, <laughs> well, the I mean, answers. Left, I mean, let me off the hook. No, I mean, I, I mean, all of these tools are part of the answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I just had a situation on, it was on Thursday, today's Saturday, and so I've gone through many of sort of these tools. Mm -hmm. Feel it in your body, like my stomach is all tight. Feel what? In, what is it that you're trying to feel um, in your body? The pain of someone not thinking I'm great and that mm. someone's saying they don't think I did a good job mm. we don't want you mm. so it's just painful you know there's many ways the mind can go mm. I'm a failure mm. they're wrong they're horrible mm. you know so don't bother feeling that bit in your body that bit you can just go like that <laughs> but it comes up yeah but so. there's an important discernment there right mm-hmm one, there's two ways of reflecting on that, right? There's nothing you can do now about the fact that some of that, that painful thing happened. Somebody said, hey, you didn't do a good job, etc. Right? And that's a painful impact. There's two ways, though, of reflecting on it. One is where one considers what might be true in that, right? If one finds there's nothing true in it, maybe there's nothing true in it, just really all that own, their own person's projection, uh, uh, intolerance, etc., uh, etc., et well, then you can just drop it. It's their business. Or one may find there is some grain of truth in it. Actually, I, I was a little hasty, or I was a little unskillful, or I was a little unsensitive. 
And that's important to know, right? Because then I can actually make use of recognizing where I was unskillful or unsensitive. And I can kind of uh, process that. I can explore that. I can contemplate that. Right? All of that's important. But the other way, which is the way we tend to do it, and a lot of the stuff around this Mara online course is about this, is that we don't really reflect on the, gr- the action, the what I did or what I said, and whether or not it was skillful or unskillful. We put it, we self-obsess, right? So whatever, we, t- we reflect on the past, and we make it not about what was said or done, but we make it about me, right? It's all about they said something about me. And then we kind of flip between, and we might have a stronger tendency in one direction or the other, either fending it off, fending it off, I'm not like that, I'm not like that, how dare they, how could they, blah, 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 right? trying to bolster the self up. Or, oh my God, how could I have been so much like that, what must they think of me, I'm such a shit. And that's just never helpful. So that's the bit to just to actively defend against what in Zen they call cutting off the mind road, or what we might call you know getting Mara to back off. That's why I say yeah, yeah. the one that wants to make it all about you can just blow a raspberry to. And only when you when you've actually got some space around it, when you're not making it about you, it's not about you. No, no, no statement from someone else or from oneself, has any capacity to really define who or how I am. Because who or how I am is fluid, ephemeral, just like this, right? All the qualities we've been exploring. Well, when, you, when you get some space from the, the believing that it's about me, then you can actually make use of whether there's something that's true there. Something you might need to apologize for, or something you wish to take care of in a different way, or etc., etc. Or one can discern, oh no, it really is about them. And I'll leave it with them. Yeah, I know the, the teachings have been very helpful today, but just the, the actual experience of, like, how do we, how should we experience pain? <laughs> like, hurt. Do I, like, sometimes I just wonder, do you just, just feel that sit in the discomfort of the hurt like literally like take mm. a you know like mm. keep doing is there a right way I to experience think, emotional right, pain right. in a healthy buddhist way right. <laughs> freely but what does that mean right i don't know if there's a way to respond really to that question but i think the inquiry is an important one right the tr- the it's a difficult inquiry if you're looking for an answer. Right? But if the inquiry is about finding out, right? oh, how, how, how can I meet? Here's this emotional pain. How can I meet it? Right? First of all, how am I meeting it? Oh, I'm ten- I may- maybe I'm making it all about me. Right? She said this about me. I'm like this. It reminds me of that, connecting with some previous experiences, bringing in all this evidence to condemn oneself with. Oh, well, is that, is that helpful? Is that doing a good job? Is that meeting it? For, oh, maybe not. And how could I meet it? So rather than to reach out for some right way that I might have, or even that you might have, as if you could find the magic bullet, right, that would zap the pain, how can I? 
There's, there's a, it's an infinite continuum. By, by which, what I mean by that is, like last night we were saying about this silly word, enlightenment, which suggests there's some destination. Naturally, the translation of buddhi, which is what's translated as enlightenment, is awakening. It's present continuous. Ah, oh, there's always, 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 for you, for me, for the Buddha, there's always an opportunity to discover something about how to meet this. Because life is immediate, fluid. So having a, a particular strategy... Oh, one should meet emotional pain like this. I think you just nail that on the fridge, and every time you have an emotional pain, hold on, let me go to the fridge. (laughs) There is no formula. And yet, there's something about, there isn't a formula, but there's something about the uh, attunement to these qualities to, to sort of stay in the frame that we've been exploring today. And to respond to that question you asked, you know, in the moment when that happens, what do you? Well, I don't know what you do in the moment, but what I do know is the more grounded one is in the fluidity of things, the more grounded one is in the sort of wholeness of what's happening. So that I'm not just reinforcing this self-obsession uh, loop here. The more the response to life, whether it's painful or whether it's delightful or or whatever it is will be one which, which just meets it kind of graciously and spaciously. So you can't write a formula for how to be gracious and spacious. But the more, just the kind of, the more one keeps coming back, particularly in the moments that aren't challenging, right, the more one keeps coming back to a certain grounding of, of awareness here, a certain attunement to the way experience is fluid the more the natural response when in the moments that we really need it will be gracious and spacious that's as close as you can get to a formula okay well Thank you, friends, for coming and attuning and just listening to your own hearts and to the touch of life today. Uh, I, I appreciate uh, the invitation of New York Insight to, to come, and it's, uh, it's a delight to come when I'm, when I'm here or sort of on my way to somewhere else and stopping here. And uh, I appreciate seeing those of you who I, who I see regularly here. And I'm happy to see those of you I'm seeing for the first time. So thank you for the support you've offered me with Dana. Thank you for the support you offer to New York Insight by uh, practicing here and uh, supporting it financially. Thank you to Kathy and uh, Delilah and uh, Viola and Dora and and Jerome. I always know when I start out listing the names, I'm going to go wrong. I should just, to the dear friends who have, have organized the day here and, the, and the, you know, the, you guys and others that actually, you know, that volunteer, a lot of people volunteer here to make this happen. And it's quite an undertaking to keep a space this size going in central Manhattan. And uh, it's a testament to the, to the goodness and the care of uh, people who love this practice. So... 
please be well, and I hope to see you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.